For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last workers as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I chose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Well, there it is. Good morning, everyone. That is our fourth and final parable of our Timeless Teaching series. We've done, gosh, we've done soils, we've done weeds. Last week we did the Unmerciful Servants, uh, and it's been kind of a, a wild walk through these 2,000-year-old stories that Jesus told uh, with the intention of making a point. And so today we're gonna dive into the, the very last one of these as we look at uh, the laborers in the vineyard. And to do that, I found a story that I really like. I like it for two reasons. It couldn't more perfectly make the point we're gonna talk about today. But in addition to that, it happens to be on the topic of my favorite hobby, which is golf. So it's a total slam dunk, all right? So we're gonna hearken all the way back to the 1966 US Open, which was played at Olympic. Arnold Palmer, one of the top golfers, for those of you that don't know, he's one of the most famous golfers of all time. It's embarrassing I even have to say that, but whatever. Held a seven-shot lead with just nine holes to play. Believing the tournament to be won, Palmer set his sights on breaking Ben Hogan's U.S. Open scoring record of 276 strokes for four rounds of golf. Turned out to be a huge mistake. Taking his eye off the real prize, Palmer blew away what looked to be an insurmountable lead. He was still up five with four holes to play, but he proceeded to bogey 15, 16, and 17. During that same stretch, Billy Casper rattled off two birdies, and at the end, the duo was shockingly tied. Casper had forced a playoff that would take place the next day, and with his putter taking over, Palmer lost the playoff by four shots. Blowing his chance to win a second open and an eighth major title, both of which he would never achieve in his career. What could have been Palmer's crowning achievement turned out to be his biggest shame. I think it's so simple. No matter how good you are, no matter how big a deal you are, whether in life or in golf, 
taking your eye off of what is absolutely imperative to go and achieve something inconsequential can be very, very detrimental. We're gonna dive in today to this last parable and what I love is Jesus tells effectively a story just like this one. Talks about what can happen in our spiritual lives when we take our eyes off what is imperative and we start to place them into some inconsequential things that are going on around us. Today, we are going to take a deep dive into the distraction of comparison. But before we do that, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do just, uh, I know from my own heart, uh, having studied this this week, I am so prone to taking my eyes off of the vertical with you and to placing them in horizontal places to my side, whether it's my brothers and sisters' lives or just different things going on around me. Uh, Lord, it's often detrimental. And so just pray today that as we look at this, as we apply this text to our lives, that you would really open our hearts and just give us a sweet sense of your guidance and your direction. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can stand on it as the truth. And as we dive into it today, help us apply it. We pray this in your precious name, amen. All right, so each week, the great thing about parables is it's effectively kind of right there. The teachings haven't been overly abstract. Uh, there's stories that we're applying. Two of the weeks, we even had Jesus go, and here's what it means. So this is another week where we don't have that, but each week I've kind of given a, here's the setting. Here's the first century setting, what was going on in the culture so we can understand it. And then we've talked a little bit about the what's what. What are the components of this thing that we need to be aware of? And we'll do that today as well. The setting for this week is a wealthy vineyard. Again, understanding, I've used this term over and over again, first century agrarian culture. You have a person in the master of the house who not only owns land, but has enough wealth that he doesn't have to work the land himself. He can hire laborers to come in. This particular master of the house has enough to where he's hiring lots of laborers to come in. So we've got a wealthy landowner, and what historians would tell us is that it was normal in the first century to work a 12-hour day during the harvest. They weren't sitting in comfy desk chairs. They're out working on the farm, and the farm day starts at sunrise. So you've got a day laborer situation. Now, here's what that meant. It meant that you had men who went out, and they stood in the marketplace, and as they stood there, Landowners from the area would come in, evaluate them by sight, and then would select the biggest, presumably the biggest and strongest, to come and to work their farms for the day. So that's the scenario. Day laborers were absolutely, without a doubt, the lowest social class of that time period, and many of them would, uh, would have been what were called freedmen. They were former slaves. They'd earned their freedom but they are now in this somewhat precarious economic status where they are walking out into the world each and every day to go earn what it is that they're going to bring home to take care of their families. So there was no security, there was no 401k with this deal. They are sitting there each and every day going, I hope I can just make enough to kind of make ends meet until tomorrow. Five groups are hired during this parable at five different times. Now, interesting note, and I'm throwing the word interesting around real loosely here, but just stick with me. The Roman day started at midnight. So historians would tell us it's very similar to our culture where it's like at midnight, the day starts. But the Jewish day started at sunrise. So assuming that sunrise is somewhere around six o'clock during this time period, the story that Jesus is telling 
has us viewing this through a Jewish lens where he's saying, okay, sunrise is at six, so when he goes out at the third, the sixth, the ninth, and then the 11th hour, he is presumably hiring people at nine, 12, three, and then remember, it's the 11th hour, not the 12th hour. He hires the last group at five o'clock with just 60 minutes left in the workday. That's it. So they're gonna be hired for an hour's worth of work. And that's like, as we go through this today, basically the way this parable lays out is that the master pays them, they grumble, and then he responds. And we're gonna spend a, pre uh, a predominant amount of time in verses 11 through 15 today in our application. Let's talk real quick about what's what. You guys are getting pretty good at this. You could probably call it from the parking lot. Master of the house is? Okay, well, it's 50-50. We'll see how this goes. Could be rough from here. Okay, laborers, who do you think that is? So good, guys. And then here, I wanna, I wanna craft this a little bit. The wages of the day. There is an eschatological, meaning a second coming, application for this, which would be eternal rewards. There is also a here and now life on earth application for this. So when we talk about the wages of the day, that denarius, all right, I wanna talk about it specifically as the generosity of God. How he chooses to bless, to favor, and to dole out what is his to give away. But because there are two places to apply this, that's how I'm framing the day's wage, all right? Now, let's just put ourselves in the position of this group, okay? Let's say that you're the big, now remember, day laborers. So they're being selected based on their appearance and their capability. Let's say that you're the 6 a.m. group. First group hired, you're the six foot four, 250 pound burly guy that gets out there who's probably hired on a regular basis because of his abilities, and you are going to work on this guy's farm. In the vineyard, you're grinding through the Middle Eastern heat, and you're sitting there, and that last group shows up, and that last group, by the way, would have been comprised of the scrubs. These are the little guys. This is the four foot eight dude that showed up and never made the basketball team. He's not great at working in any setting, but it's the only option he's got. But these are the guys that never get hired. These guys show up with 60 minutes left. You are soaking through everything you have, and it comes time to get paid, and it's all equal. Listen. It, I get it, right? We'd all be a little upset if it was like, wait a minute, you're telling me I did 12 hours, he did one, and we're gonna get the same thing? Does this all make sense to us, right? This is why these guys are grumbling. They're sitting back and they're going, this is completely nuts, and I don't care what he promised me, I'm a little upset that this is what's going on. But as we sit back on that, the, as I read this this week, I sat there and I went, I feel like I've heard something like this. Like every once in a while, you're sitting there and you're preparing a sermon and you go, this, is, this has happened somewhere before. Here's what I was reminded of. Uh, Peter, who I just love because he always gives us the best examples, right? It's like how not to behave in the kingdom. Peter nails it, every gold medal, every time. And so Peter is sitting there and it's towards the end of John. We just did a 35-year study of the book of John. Do you guys remember that? That joke didn't go as well at eight o'clock. So really nailed it here. But uh, we just wrapped up the book of John. It's in chapter 21. And what I remembered, though I went and researched a little bit, is Peter's standing there and they're actually talking about, hey, who's gonna betray Jesus? And Peter, who's always happy to be the first to speak and have his foot put in his mouth, looks over and goes, what about this guy? 
And Jesus is sitting there and he says something awesome. It's John 21, verse 22, let's take a look. Jesus said to him, looks at Peter and says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. What I love about this so much is that Peter's sitting there and he's in the midst of this moment where he's sort of going, I think I'm doing pretty good. I think I've kind of got this thing figured out walking with Jesus, but what about that guy? And what Jesus does in this moment that's so solid is he looks at Peter in the midst of this somewhat public rebuke and goes, Peter, honestly, now it's not in the text, right? But Jesus is redirecting him towards himself because what Jesus knows is, Peter, don't we have enough going on in your life? Isn't there enough? Peter, don't, don't you know I have a whole adventure for you? Peter, is it not enough that you're the Petros, the rock that I'll build my church upon? Peter, don't you understand? There is enough trial and triumph in your life. Can't we just do you? But says it so strongly to go, hey, Peter, every time you take your eyes off me, stuff falls apart. That occurred to me this week. Can you think of another time where Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and started to look around and it sunk him quite literally? It's when he's called out of the boat. Peter's on the boat and he starts to look out. He sees Jesus walking on the water in the storm and somehow avoided having a cardiac event but decides to follow Jesus onto the water and as he starts to walk on water as his savior is doing, he all of a sudden starts to get a little cocky, kind of decides to start looking around and taking in the scenery of the storm and starts to sink. Here's the point, gang. Every single time Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus and places them anywhere else, he starts to sink. What I wanna to submit to us today as we dive deeper is that th this is an echoing of the exact point that this parable is making, that taking our eyes off of Jesus and putting them anywhere else People or possessions will sink us. That's the point of this parable. We're gonna spend the next 25 minutes applying that exact deal, but let's take a modern context, okay? Just in case you've never walked on water, let's do something that we can actually think about. Okay, I'm gonna pick on a couple of things. Here's what I don't want you to hear. Don't walk out of here and say, oh man, you can't be a Christian and be on Instagram. Rustin said it today. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? I never said that, but I want to evaluate some fruit and I wanna talk about kinda of how we go to these things. So let's talk for just a second. Instagram, all right, you guys have heard of it? It's a fairly big deal. You got it on your Twitter machines, you're constantly spending time scrolling away. Instagram gives us an opportunity, and let's just take the best possible scenario for Instagram, okay? This is what I think it would look like. You're standing there, you kinda of go, oh man, look at this. You know what, she's doing her devotion today. Would you look at that? She's got the coffee cup with the perfect Bible verse on it. She's got the Bible. She's got the journal. Picture of the storm out in the back. Lots of pallet wood laying around. This is a really good, I'm so proud of her for doing her devotion. Hey, would you look at that? They got to go to Italy. You know what? I bet they had a great time in Italy. I've never been to Italy, but that doesn't matter. I'm proud of them. And would you look at this, a brand new car that goes with their brand new house. The Lord has truly blessed them with riches beyond all measure. I'm so pleased. <laughs> Might as well call it Comparagram. Because what we end up doing on Instagram is we, and I'll do myself here, 
I go on there and I'm like, oh look, he's doing his devotion. He's not reading that. <laughs> hey babe, the Thompsons went to that uh, Bora Bora thing with the stick huts. Why didn't we ever do that? Next time we need the stick huts, let's do the stick huts. <laughs> we never sit there in the midst of a social media moment and respond with gratitude outward, we always move with either comparison or condemnation inward. We do this on Instagram, we do this on Facebook. It's not exhaustive. I know sometimes we're happy for other people, but so many times what happens on our social media outlets, and again, here's the deal. If you're doing this well, awesome, great. What I'm inviting right now is a moment for us to evaluate the fruit of what our social media outlets are giving us. What are they producing? To be honest, I didn't steward that well. I made a decision a little while ago, I'm off all social media, okay? Right, a millennia off all social media. This is like groundbreaking stuff, right? The president, <laughs> this is a big deal. I just, I'd get on there and I'd look at the toxic political grenade lobbying and I'd sit there and watch the hatred that bounced back and forth. Every time I got a Facebook, you know what I was? Sad. Now, here's the deal. That was my experience, so I stopped doing it. Because there came a point where I just, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't good at it. I couldn't do it. And so what I realized was I was taking the things I was seeing, and I was not looking and going good for them. I was taking them inward and starting to go, why not me, or how come them? Why not me, or how come them? We do the same thing, because uh, this culture that we're all walking around in is struggling with body image left and right. Everybody's working out. Why don't I look that way? Why don't I have that shirt? Why don't I have that dress? Why don't, we're constantly comparing ourselves to others, and what most of our social media outlets have done, somewhat invisibly in our lives, is invited us to constantly look horizontally at each other, and it can draw us away from something far richer going on in the vertical with the Lord. I have found that in my life, and this is what I'm inviting today, is some deeper analysis of what fruit it's producing. It has not borne a ton of fruit in my life, and I've continuously been distracted by the game of comparison. We have yet another parable today as we press on that starts with the incredible phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. What I want you to hear, every once in a while I'll say, hey, anytime you hear this in the Bible, I want you to hear this. Anytime you read a parable, prodigal son, weeds, soils, all the different things that have started this summer with the kingdom of heaven is like, I want you to hear, replace the phrase in your brain, let it trigger this thought, it's better than earth. The kingdom of heaven, trigger, Jesus is about to tell us something that's better than earth. Whether it's a father, whether it's a king, whether it's a caregiver, it will always be Jesus saying, the kingdom of heaven is better than the kingdom of earth. And this is absolutely no different. Jesus is going to sit down and say, this is how the kingdom works, and it's real different than the way that things work down here on earth. Most of uh, this parable is really applied through verses 11 through 15. So I'm not gonna read them because you already heard them, but I wanna highlight a few things in these verses here. The, the master of the house has come 
and has now paid the first group, the 6 a.m.ers, the big beefy football players, have been paid for their 12 hours of work. And it says, and on receiving it, they grumbled. So they made a deal, they worked, and now they're complaining, even though they got what they were promised. So you can kind of, you've heard the rest of the deal. What I want to apply and spend some time in today is verse 15, where uh, the master of the house asks two rhetorical questions. They are, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me and or do you begrudge my generosity? This is the point of the parable. And then following this, Jesus will lay out a kingdom principle. So we get the point and the principle. The point that he starts with is, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Effectively, what's happening is these 6 a.m.ers are coming to him and going, hey, let me get this straight. We're the same? They're offended. Oh, you're telling me the scrub? By the way, these guys knew each other. These cities aren't massive. They're probably standing together as day laborers, the same 15, 20, 50 guys every single morning. They'd met. And in the midst of that experience, the big guy, the captain of the team, is looking down at the bench warmer and going, wait a minute, you're telling me this today? <laughs> this is what's going on? And then he looks at the master of the house and goes, let me help you with something. This is how I think this should have gone. Let me ask us a tough question today. Do we ever do this to God? Do we ever go to the Lord and go, hey, wait a minute. Hey, how come him? Why him? Why not me? You know, to the God that, has the cattle on a thousand hills, to say, you've got so many resources. Why didn't you give me that? Why didn't you give me what I deserved? I want us to understand that in those moments when we look at the God of the universe and we come to him and Rustin Rossello says, hey God, you know, so-and-so's got a killer job and just making crazy amounts of money. How come him? Why not me? I am telling God what he should do with his generosity. I'm telling God, you know, I know that your thoughts are higher than my thoughts and your ways are higher than my ways. I know that uh, I wasn't around like he told Job when, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? I, I know that all of those things are in play here, but I had some thoughts on how this should go. I, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the master of the house. You have a group in front of you who you are going to share generously with and equally with. And then one of them sort of pops up in the middle of this experience, in the midst of you sharing generously with them. And all of a sudden, one of them goes, I think I deserve more. <coughs> I, what? No, <laughs> I, I'm giving equally to all of you. No, 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 I deserve more. I, I think I do more, I think I'm worth more. I, I don't think he deserves what I deserve. This is the moment where we look at the God of the universe and we say, I think I know better. You don't seem to know what's going on down here, almighty master of the house. This was such a gut check for me this week because I realized in so many cases where I start to look horizontally, I lose gratitude and I start to gain entitlement. 
I wanna come deserving to the throne because I've gotten myself all spun up around me. My horizontal eyes, my peripheral in my spiritual life, physical life, it started to get off of the throne and now I've gotten distracted. I wanna come to the throne begrudging the Lord for his generosity, which is the exact question he asks next. Or do you begrudge my generosity? Is it not mine to do with what I want? Or do you begrudge my generosity? The question goes right at the heart of the problem. It pits God's goodness against human sin. The good generosity of the landowner is the polar opposite of the angry, complaining hearts of the early 6 a.m. workers. One of the things that can happen here, and this is a quick cautionary moment, uh, at times our capitalism can run away with our Bibles, okay? We sit back, and when we hear the group that was hired in the 11th hour, uh, we're Americans. We value hard work. We value work to death. We value absolutely, you should never not be working or you're missing out. These are our principles that we found our lives on. And so at times when we read passages like these, what we can hear is they were hired in the 11th hour because they were lazy. Let me read verse six for you real quick. It says, and about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? Listen to what they say. They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. How are these guys hired? By evaluation. They're chosen. The big ones first. The little ones last. Or in this case, not at all. You see, remember, these guys knew each other. I'm pressing the text a bit here, but this is not a cultural leap. Like historians would tell you, these guys are selected. The fact that they were still standing there at 5 p.m., the scrubs with an hour left, would have meant that they were so desperate and so disenfranchised that they were hanging on for dear life, not wanting to go home to their wife and their kids empty-handed. They've got nothing left. They are standing there hoping for a miracle, and one shows up in the master of the house. Where this whole thing gets turned on its head is Jesus is pressing in super hard to be able to make his final statement, to be able to lay out the kingdom principle. But before we go to it, I want you to hear how if this had gone just a little different, if this had operated with a kingdom heart in the early workers, it could have looked so, so different. The big ones, the ones that are hired every day, they're super upset, not because they didn't get paid, but because somebody else was paid equally. It didn't affect what they brought home to their families at all. But instead, they're looking at these little guys who actually got something today on many days where they would go home empty-handed and they're begrudging the generosity of the master to them. How different would this parable be if the best of the best, the A players, the captain of the team had stood there in that moment and gone, bro, you got hired today. You, you did it. You, you, were, you get to go home, you got a denarius in your hand. How's that feel? Good for you. Today is a good day. Isn't the master of the vineyard amazing? Go home, be with your wife, be proud of what you did today. Today is blessed and favored for you, my friend. That's not how this story goes though, because he's telling an earthly principle to make a kingdom point. What's the kingdom point? Here's the principle. 
so the last will be first and the first last. Like the kingdom works differently. The kingdom changes everything. It doesn't work like the earth. The master of the vineyard is an incredible caregiver and he looks at the least of these and the principle that he's pressing into is, see, you don't get it. Even the least of these, even the ones that society has rejected, even the ones that culture say you have no value, you don't get to play in the game. You were a slave and not only a slave, a tiny slave. Who would hire you? Who would bring you into the vineyard? And the best master, the one that functions outside of the earth, he's the one that says even you get to come in. And the point that he's making is exactly that. The last shall be first and the first last. Here's a great quote out of a commentary that I read this week. It says, those who make the world's values primary and place them above God will be last at the eschaton. Eschaton, big fancy seminary word for what happens after death. The second coming, the age to come where Christ is reigning. And that's what he says. Last at the eschaton, but those who put Christ first and find themselves last in the world will receive all the kingdom rewards of, and he's talking about Matthew 19, 28, and 29. When you flip the script and you stop going, this is what values, this is what matters and is valued most here on earth, this doesn't matter at all. When you start looking at earth through a kingdom lens, it changes everything. You start to see value in different places. You start to see that there is reward and inheritance in things that the kingdom values that the earth does not. What's chapter 19 talking about? Let's take a look at it. Now, verse 28 takes us off into a totally different eschatological reality. And so rather than take you there, I don't even wanna answer questions on it. You can read it, knock yourself out. I'm focused on what applies to our sermon today, which is this, 19, uh, verse 29, and it says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. It will change everything because what will be first will be last and what will be last will be first. What's Jesus saying? You will be shocked at what's going on. How do we change that? How do we not allow this dynamic to happen in our Christian lives? We have to think through a kingdom lens. We've been talking all, all month about what it means to be a part of a family and to hope that our family resemblance starts to reflect the Father. How do we stop looking at the earth as the highest possible principle that we live to? We've gotta dwell in a deeper truth. We have to be willing to operate differently. So the reality goes from there where you go, okay, so for just a second, how does, how does this look? Where do we go from here? I want you to imagine for a second if we actually applied this principle, if we lived by this principle in our daily lives, we would stop having the misses. If we took our eyes off of the horizontal of our brothers and sisters' lives, there's two primary misses here and I wanna call them both out. I've talked about one mostly to this point and it's jealousy. His stuff, her stuff, his people, her people, etc. It's the place where we go, I want, how come they? That's jealousy, it's envy, it's coveting. That's one of the misses. The other one that actually the 6 a.m.ers got caught up in, it's actually contempt, it's condescension, it's rejection. It's the standing there and going, you're telling me 
<laughs> You're telling me we're the same? We're not the same. I'm so much more capable. I'm so much more valuable to the kingdom than this runt. That's the other miss. Here's a great quote on that. It says, Christians must accept those whom God has brought into the family. Time out. Who decides who's in the family? God. You guys are getting better at this. This is awesome. <laughs> he decides who's in the family. What's our job? To love those that show up. Like the older brother in, the, in Luke 15 or the first group in this parable, many Christians often resent or look down on many whom God has accepted whether on racial, ethnic, or economic grounds. There are no possible grounds for such prejudices, which by the way, those aren't the only three. It is entirely the evil eye of pride and prejudice that is at fault. It's not just those three reasons. We do that because of the way people look or social awkwardness. They're not as much fun to be around. We do it all the time. And yet, these are the people that God has brought into the kingdom, brought into the family. So the question that comes is, well, Rustin, if I didn't, constantly compare all the time, I'm gonna have a lot, of my time, a lot of time on my hands. What am I gonna do with it? Well, we got a couple options. One primary one. We focus our eyes vertically. Instead of looking at him, small h, her, small h, we start looking at him, capital H, the one. The one who loves you more than anything you've ever known. Who's a blessing to serve, and a joy to follow. We start to go after the one who paid for us to be a part of the family, the one who invited us into the vineyard. We start to keep our eyes strictly on the master of the vineyard, and we stop looking at other laborers. Uh, the concept that I'm gonna build upon here was laid out beautifully. I'm using a new resource that I really like. It's called the New City Catechism. Uh, catechism is a process that the church used to use to do some foundational discipleship with new believers. Uh, the process of catechesis isn't used the way that it used to, uh, but the Heidelberg Catechism has been around forever. Uh, the, the Lutherans have used it forever to continue to do deep discipleship. It's a process of indoctrination. That word has gotten a horrible reputation over the years, but when you're being given the right stuff, an indoctrination process is actually quite wonderful. Uh, the resource is called the New City Catechism, and the way uh, catechisms work is that you're asked a question and then there's an answer, so there's a question and answer. This particular one, which has been modernized by Tim Keller, bringing some modern resources into the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, is wonderful and it's available online, so you can go and look at it. But the process is a question and an answer each day with some scripture, some commentary, and a prayer. It's wonderful, I, like I said. I've got a master's degree studying this stuff, but the simplicity of it has been so refreshing and wonderful for me. Here's week one, and it's gonna drive home the point that I wanna make. Here's the question and the answer. What is our only hope in life and death? Great question. Let's see what they got. That we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are not our own. We belong to the master of the house. We belong to another. We were bought at a price far too precious to ignore. There's a verse each week. Let's take a look at what the verse for this particular week was. It's Romans 14, seven through eight. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So that whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 
Here's the great news about belonging to the Lord. The great news about it is that when you belong to the Lord, everything you do is his. And anything that you have is just blessing. It's gravy. It's extra. Some of us have had the experience where, and I know some of the sweetest and simplistic seasons of my life, the most easy it's ever been, are when the Lord has brought me through a painful season. I remember a time in college, I was working, on, uh, working in a warehouse, and uh, I was driving a forklift, and I had a moment, I can still remember right where I was, I had a moment where I was genuinely overwhelmed at the fact that I just belonged to God. Now, I screwed it up again. I made life super complicated. But the same thing happened again in early marriage. Coming out of a really tough run, all of a sudden, it had all been stripped away. I was just glad to be in the vineyard. I didn't have stuff, I didn't have, it had all been stripped away, and I was just glad to be in the vineyard. The point that I wanna make here at the end is this. When we think we have in some way, shape, or form contributed or earned our salvation, we start to look around and we wanna make sure that we're being equally compensated. We start to look at the other laborers and go, well, I think I'm, we start doing this, we start puffing up, we start standing around. I wish I were taller, I can barely make it over this thing right now. But when we look at our salvation as something that we received as a free gift, we start to develop a tremendous amount of appreciation just to be in the vineyard. We start looking around and going, gosh, I'm here, I'm in the kingdom, I'm doing kingdom work, and oh, by the way, I start looking for other people to go, have you met the master of the house? Oh, he's so great, he's so fair, he's so wonderful, he takes care of all of us. And, and we're all compensated. We're, we're all given what we need. And I just, I just keep loving the master of the house and he just keeps letting me work each day. He's actually so good, he gives me things to do in a kingdom economy, a place where I'm gifted. He has a plan for me within the vineyard. I get to go out and use my gifts. Oh, it's just so, best parts of my life have been where it's been just that simple. The great challenge of the Christian life is when the Lord gives us things that are in addition to that, that we steward them in a way where it doesn't make us start looking around, but it keeps our eyes here. And the Lord continues to trust us with more, and our goal is to continue to steward what he gives us without letting it take our eyes off of the king. That's the tricky part of Christianity. It's not getting wrecked. It's actually when he starts handing us new stuff and we gotta kinda continue to steward the stuff while never taking our eyes off the master. If I could pack this whole sermon into one point, this is it. We belong to the master of the vineyard. We are privileged to be there, and we must keep our eyes on him and him alone. That's the kingdom. That's the simplicity. That's what it looks like to walk in the confidence of the master of the house. And the best it gets is when that's all we do. I've been super fortunate, just absolutely, I call it happenstance, but I think the Lord just kinda saw some of this coming. I gave you guys a great resource last week. Carolyn Myers had written a blog on forgiveness. It was perfect. It's actually on the parable that I taught. This week, we've got a really great one. Ethan Clark, who's our YTH pastor uh, over at our Cactus Campus, he's doing some awesome stuff with the youth over there. Uh, he wrote a blog this week on all things of comparison. Like, you can't make this stuff up, it's just great. But it's great writing and solid biblical truth on comparison and how destructive it can be for us at times. scottsdalebible.com forward slash blog. Just 
Go check it out. It's a quick read, but boy, is it good. And then next week, Kevin's gonna come in. He's gonna start a series where he talks about some eternal realities and talking about eternity from a biblical lens and helping us with just some of these realities that we tend to miss at times. I know Kevin, I love his teaching. I'm excited to have him in here and see what he does with it. I can speak for Kevin and myself, but I just wanna say this real quick. It has been a privilege to be in this pulpit for the last month, and I just absolutely love uh, these opportunities. And so to be a part of the teaching team is a great gift, but I also wanna tell you this, I'm really proud of each and every one of you. I have had such an overwhelming amount of sharing and transparency of your testimonies. And as a pastor, there are a few things that are as sweet as watching the congregation that you get to be a part of leading, applying God's word, and doing the really hard work to let Jesus shape them. And to sit back and to watch you guys do that through some of your sharing, through some of your prayer right down here in the front of this room, hearing about what's going on in our campuses and online, gosh, what a gift it's been. And so just know that from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate you guys, and it's been a total privilege to be up here with you. So with that said, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we know how tempting it is for our eyes to wander, how quickly we can take our eyes off of you and start to look at earthly realities. Lord, it'll probably be something that we continue to fight for most of our lives down here. We just ask that you, Holy Spirit, would you continue to draw us into you and continue to keep our eyes moving away from the things of earth and towards eternal things, eternal realities, eternal truths, things that we can stand on. We give our hearts to you. We thank you for loving us and never letting us go. We pray this in your name, amen.